Hey everybody, this is Warren Sharp, NFL analyst over at Sharp Football Analysis. I want to welcome you to the Ringer Gambling Show. Join me on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays each week during the NFL season with guests Chris Vernon, Ben Solak, and Joe House to guide you through the NFL betting landscape. We'll be talking spreads, game totals, parlays, player props, futures, and much, much more. Be sure to follow the Ringer Gambling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Full Go, presented by FanDuel. The playoff action is heating up, and with FanDuel, you can bet on everything from the NBA Finals MVP to who's going to lift the Stanley Cup. And right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, or SGPs as the kids like to call them, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together... We're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Chicago everywhere. Check it. What up, world? You're listening to The Full Goal with Jason Golf, presented by The Ringer, a Spotify original. Yeah. Welcome into the Full Go Podcast, brought to you by The Ringer and, of course, Spotify is the gang. I'm Jason Goff, and this is episode 25. And no, I'm not about to do the whole Bears-Steelers thing with you right now. In fact, I'm going to start off with a team that everybody's kind of buzzing about here in the city, and it's the Chicago Bulls. Uh, the last time that we talked about Chicago Bulls, they had beat the Jazz, I believe, and they're getting ready to go face off against the Boston Celtics and then the home-and-home home with the Philadelphia 76ers. They they got in the Boston Celtics. They were down by, what, 19 points and came back. Uh, it was the first time in the shot clock era that a team was down by 14 or more uh, and came back in the fourth quarter and won by 14 or more. So the Bulls out here setting feats that you – or setting I guess marks the historical marks that you don't want to have on your name like you don't want to be the team oh look at them they're just getting their ass kicked and then they end up whooping somebody's ass you don't want to be that team but this team is uh it's kind of funky it's kind of funky if you're watching this squad right now you're trying to figure out all right who's who's the man and and who's the guy that I should you know glom onto as as my guy with the Bulls a lot of people loving Derrick Jones Jr. of course Alex Caruso's got his own cult fan base that you know is in LA and now has moved to Chicago but this team the, the way that it's put together and the way that injuries have hit the squad early on in the season Patrick Williams dislocating his by the way Patrick Williams is a psycho uh, Patrick Williams dislocated his wrist as a 20-year-old and not did not let out a peep. Like he he didn't he winced kinda right, but he came down all his body weight after uh, getting fouled on a dunk attempt 
all of his body weight, all 235, 240 pounds of his young body coming down on his wrist. And you would have thought that the air, you know, he got the air knocked out of him or something like that. So he comes down on his wrist. He, he dislocates his wrist. He'll be out for the remainder of the season. That's a huge blow to this squad because they were going to be small no matter what. And he was going to play a lot of small ball five for them. Now Vooch has to man that. And on top of it, Tony Bradley is going to get a lot of those minutes uh, who, you know, I don't know if Billy Donovan planned for him to get a lot of those minutes early on in the season, but he's getting a lot of those minutes at that backup five spot. But you don't get a chance to see Patrick Williams develop. Uh, you're going to have to offer him that qualifying offer after next year. So, you know, it's one of those things where the same thing that I felt about Laurie marketing, but in a different instance or a different circumstance, not knowing what your young players are halfway through their first contract is just detrimental to a team's development and growth. Uh, you, you got to know because you're getting ready to pay these guys. They didn't know what Wendell was. They traded him. Uh, Lowry, they, they offered him a deal that was way below what he thought he was going to get. And the rest of the season was pretty much a lame duck campaign for him. So with Patrick Williams being hurt this early in the season, a lot of rotations are thrown off. A lot of expectations might be thrown off. But they went into Boston and beat up on a team who – is having some issues. Marcus Smart came out and said he don't want to stand in the corner. You know, Jalen and Jason got to learn to pass the ball. They got a bunch of issues. By the way, Brad Stevens, shout out to you. You did the reverse Greg Popovich. Remember when Greg Popovich uh, you know, was the GM and the, the team, uh, president of basketball operations for the San Antonio Spurs, and Bob Hill was just sitting there taking L after L after L, and then they got the first pick, and Greg Popovich were like, ah, ah, it's time for me to fire Bob Hill. It's time for me to go down there and coach one of the greatest big men that the game has ever seen and then draft Manu Ginobili and draft Tony Parker and have one of the, the great dynasties that the game has ever seen. So Brad Stevens kind of did the opposite of that. Brad Stevens saw that there was a bad moon rising and was like, ah, you know what, I'm going to kick myself up to the to the front office. Ime Udoka, you've been waiting for your first shot. You come from that Greg Popovich staff. Enjoy Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and a bunch of dudes who really don't fit. Yeah, have a good time with that, Emei. So the Bulls came back from down big and then beat the hell out of the Boston Celtics, especially in the fourth. Was it 39 to 11 or something like that in the fourth quarter? But all the while, I've been watching this team in the half court and saying to myself, not only are they going to have to learn each other, but when they learn each other, our team's going to be able to stop it easier because they don't have a lot of uh, long-distance shooting. You know, Zach can get hot. He's a tough shot maker. His step back three is one of the best in the game. But when that's not falling, who else are your shot makers? Uh, DeMar DeRozan is a shot maker, but he's more of a mid-range guy, long two guy. He's hit a lot more threes early on in the, in the season. And this may be anecdotally because I haven't checked the numbers, but it seems like he's hit more threes early on in the season than I remember him hitting in an eight-game, nine-game span and watching him in years previous. But, dude, this team, this team defends their ass off like – Caruso and Lonzo Ball and what they do at the top of the key, it's one of those things where I've talked about Kevin Garnett before and how he made Ray Allen and Paul Pierce better defenders because, one, when you got an anchor like that back there, it makes a difference. Two, when you got a communicator like that, it makes a difference. And three, it's kind of hard to tell KG, my bad. You know, it's kind of hard to tell a guy that's busting his ass on the defensive end. 
Oh, my fault. You know, that was a my bad possession. So Paul Pierce and Ray Allen got it together. Next thing you know, they win a championship with KG. Not saying this is a championship team, but when you've got guys like Alex Caruso, who's got a championship, and Lonzo Ball, who's playing better defense than anybody on the perimeter. Zach Levine now has to get up on his man. He has to run through screens and not just give Velcro to him. You know, he's got to know his defensive assignments. And the times that he's off or the times that he's wandering, it's glaring because the rest of the defense is on a string. So that, that functional accountability that you're seeing defensively from uh, another Billy Donovan-led team who's, I believe, never had a team finish below the top 12 in defensive rating in his professional career, which speaks to how he emphasizes that side of the ball. You've seen it. You've seen these guys play uh, not just on a string, but, you know, the, the multiple efforts in the shot blocking. Uh, you're getting guards coming back and blocking shots on the weak side. Like, this is this is a thing. And I think Vooch has been a little bit better on defense than you expected him to be. He's still he's still not good. Let's face it. Um, they, they are targeting Vooch every chance they get. But the real test begins this in the month of November. They got 16 games this month. And if I'm not mistaken, every single damn one of them is against a team that has playoff aspirations. And I'm going to run down this this uh, this this lineup for you. They played Boston. They beat them. And then the Philadelphia game happened. The Philadelphia game. <laughs> Man, the Philadelphia game. The Joel Embiid thing. Like, I've long argued with my buddy Tony Gill here in this city about Joel Embiid. I think Joel Embiid has Akeem Olajuwon type of talent, but he's got Oliver Miller discipline. And when I say that, you see how big this man is. And, he, you know, you've, you've heard about the gastro uh, issues that he's had. Uh, hell, I think he missed a game a couple of years ago, a playoff game, because his stomach was bothering him so bad. So his eating habits and his workout regimen hasn't been what you would think it would be this far into his career. And on top of that, that man's he's favoring that left knee. If you're watching Philadelphia 76ers games these year, this year, it's too early in the season for him to be dragging that left knee. He's already taken a couple of games off and back-to-backs with load management. Uh, the, the, the funny thing is, though, he took the Portland game off and he played the Bulls. In the last two or three years, it would have been the inverse, right? You take that Bulls game off so you can go up against Dame Lillard and that Portland Trailblazers crew. So it means the Bulls are being respected around the league. But that Philly game was, was disgusting. I mean, you had two guys score 64 points and the rest of the team muster up. Was it 98? Was it 103, 98, something like that? That's not that's not going to get it done. And for as many people in this city who wonder what Kobe White is and wonder if he's going to have a spot on this team or wonder if Kobe White's going to be dealt for another big, listen, Kobe White can do one thing and his marketable skill in the NBA is to score the basketball. And I think he's a guy that they're going to need at some point this season. He's on the way back. He's starting to do some contact cold drills, right? So he's not he's not mixing it up with five-on-fives or three-on-threes yet, but he's, he's starting to – and I guess he's finally getting a chance to lay the ball up with his left shoulder above his head, which is a step of progress that he didn't have over those last few weeks coming off of shoulder surgery. So he's truly remaking his entire layup package. Uh, but Kobe White's going to be needed by this team. Um, defensively, you know, he's shown the effort. I think sometimes it's attention to detail, not knowing the league a lot, not knowing guys' tendencies, not having a book in your head on, on where certain guys like to have the ball or what they like to do when they catch the ball. So Kobe White is going to be uh, a, a much-needed shot in the arm uh, for this team offensively. But Io DeSumo, I mean, I, this is a guy I thought was going to be in the G League getting some seasoning. 
but he has been thrown into some very pressurized moments early on in this season is not back down. This dude is a fighter. Like going to Morgan Park and then going to University of Illinois, every single every single step I think he's been doubted. Uh, you know, he's he's McDonald's all American, don't get me wrong. But, you know, even here in the city, I remember, I'll never forget, and I won't mention my guy, uh, but he knows who he is if he's listening to this. I had a dude who I respect his basketball opinion, uh, and he said, yo, you like Io? And I'm like, I, I, think he's, I think he's decent. I think the University of Illinois got a good player. This is his high school year, his senior year, and he's like, man, that dude don't do much for me. Like he's not, he doesn't have enough wiggle to his game. His jumper isn't wet enough. His his handle isn't isn't secure enough. And all he did was, you know, play three years at the University of Illinois and led them to a number one seed. Uh, he's a winner. Like he's a he's a dude who's going to give you all of himself. And on top of it, Demar Derozan and Zach Levine are already tired of him because he's asking so many damn questions, which is a good thing, right? To have those two veterans in your in the same backcourt or in the same, I guess, you know, small backcourt. Uh, if you're talking about DeMar DeRozan as a small forward. but And he's got more cheeks. He's got Maurice Cheeks on the coaching staff to learn from, an all-time guard, a champion guard, uh, a Chicago native. So all those things are working in Ayo DeSumo's favor. And, of course, Derek Jones Jr., some of the other guys, Javante Green, they got a lot of static guys, like a lot of dudes who can make wild plays and a lot of guys who could change the game with their athleticism. So shout out to the Bulls fans because this year you got something very intriguing. This year you got something that that I don't think will let you down in the interest factor. Now, this team's going to have their issues, right? Rebounding is going to be a huge issue for this team going forward. If they're, they're the type of team, and I remember saying this about the Miami Heat uh, when they first got together with LeBron and D-Wade and Chris Bosh, and then they had to fill in with a bunch of guys. You know, Joel Anthony was their starting center. And you talk to guys, Jason Jackson, my man down there with Heat TV. He's actually on the radio side of things now. So shout out to Jason Jackson uh, for getting that bump. But you talk to people down there when that was happening, and they said, hey, if they break even or stay within five, then they win the rebounding battle, essentially, because of how talented they are everywhere else. Bulls are going to have to be the same kind of squad. If they break even with a team, consider that a win on the glass because this team doesn't have, the one, the big bodies, and then, two, the guys who can go get the ball if they're not a big body. Like, they have a lot of guards who are going to crash and help the rebounding, but you know, Vooch is in an out-of-zone rebounder. He's not going to chase down a lot of boards. Uh, and if he's blocked out or if guys are face-guarding him, then that means everybody on that, you know, that smaller front line is going to have to crash. And, you know, Derrick Jones Jr. can jump over everyone, but he's still six foot six and 210 pounds. Like, he doesn't have a lot of beef. So, Bulls are going to have to rebound. And their half-court offense, they're going to have to get it together. There was some unfortunate possessions at the end of that Philadelphia game where I'm sitting back like, okay, Zach's trying to be the man, but DeMar's got it going. DeMar had 37 points. He should have had 42-43, but at the end of the game, Zach, who you know, um, brought him back, 13 points in that third quarter, he brought him back. He helped bring him, brought him back, but when DeMar's got it going like that, you gotta, I won't say defer, but you gotta let the hot man go. And I think Zach will learn that, and I think DeMar uh, will, will give Zach enough space to understand when and how he needs the basketball, but it's a lot different than the last two years where you were just watching children play basketball trying to learn the game. Now you've got veterans, you got cold-blooded killers. Like DeMar DeRozan is a serious professional scorer. That dude is a basketball player who's been in the league for 10 years. You ain't going to tell him much. There ain't much he hasn't seen. So he's not around for these statement games and these, you know, development and moral victories. That ain't why he came here, and I can appreciate it. Uh, who was it? Ah, oh, Sarudi. 
Tanny, you got to help me here. Who was the dude in Major League Two who was like the mercenary? Uh, Jack Parkman? Jack Parkman. There it is. DeMar DeRozan is basketball Jack Parkman. And I'm not saying he's a jerk like Jack Parkman, but hey, man, I'm I'm here. Does he have a little shimmy that drives the women in Cleveland (laughs) crazy? I don't know if he has that, right? I, well, I don't mean, what is it, like the Compton Calypso? You know what I mean? Like, what, what would it be called, right? Like, I don't know what it is, but I don't know if he does have a shimmy, but uh, DeMar DeRozan is definitely, you know, uh, he's living up to the deal. You know, I, I'd love to hear how Ryan Russillo and uh, Dollar Bill Simmons feel about one DeMar DeRozan right now and the fit. I know it's an early, early in the season. I know it's a, a small sample size, but – Chicago, you got yourself a team, and they will be playing in the United Center. And unfortunately, it ain't the Blackhawks because they are no damn good. Uh, I believe they've had, what, two leads all season now. And on top of that, with that scandal, it's uh, it's uh, slim pickings for the people who told Bulls fans that they should take the Madhouse on Madison sign down when the Bulls were playing. Ah, uh, see how it happens? See how it's, it's cyclical? See how See how things crumble right there? I want. I, I can't wait to see who's still going to Hawks games, uh, you know, in the next couple of months or so. But if you're going to Bulls games, which I will be going to on my birthday Monday night, it's the first Bulls game I've been to maybe in five, six years, something like that. But I, I'm looking forward to the Bulls versus the Nets because this ain't this ain't what it used to be back in the days where it's like come watch Allen Iverson play or come watch uh, you know Shaq play or come watch somebody else play. It's hey. Come watch the Bulls beat Kevin Durant. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. The Full Goal with Jason Goff. So here on the Full Goal podcast with Jason Goff, every once in a while we get people who, uh, you know, are the personification of professionalism and class. Uh, from afar, I've respected this man's career and the way he carries himself. And every once in a while, I get a chance to bump into him around the city. I think last time was on like a a football field where like, you know, youth football was happening. I was like, oh, shit, it's it's Howard Griffith. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Griffith joining us here on the Full Go Podcast with Jason Gall brought to you by The Ringer and always Spotify is the gang. Mr. Griffith, thank you so much for for jumping on with us. Uh, I truly appreciate it. And I'm going to embarrass you this pod Uh because, Uh yeah, yeah, because, because, you know, I, I I tried to do my research, you know. I I went around, snuck around some corners, you know. Uh-oh. Asked some people that you know you may have bumped into while at the University of Illinois, you know, people who may have been on the basketball team, that kind okay. of thing. But I did not know, sir, that you held the NCAA record for touchdowns in a game. <laughs> now now, correct me if I'm wrong, because. You know, I, I went, I can't even say I went. I was at Carbondale and Southern Illinois University for about 
good seven, eight months as some freshmen are, are you know, and likely to do. It uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, really, wasn't really focused. I was 17 years old. I found out that I was away from my parents and I was away from Evanston and I could be a new person and girls could uh-huh. like me on a different level than they had ever mm-hmm. done before. But I didn't know that you ran for eight touchdowns against the Salukis. Now, tell me about that day before we, uh, we, we get into your career and, and, and why you have uh, become one of the, uh, I, I would say, sterling um, examples of, of, you know, post-career success in the broadcasting lane. But eight touchdowns, man, like ah. at what point, at what point are you like, mm, you know, this is ridiculous. <laughs> you, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because the game didn't start out uh, like we thought it would. You know, I, we actually need to fast forward to the summer. Um, they were having Kappa Carnival on uh, at the U of I campus, uh-huh. and a bunch of the players came up from uh, Carbondale, and we were talking mad trash. At least I was. <laughs> they were talking about, we're going to get you, we're going to get you. I'm like, dude, I'll be done by the first, before the first quarter's over, and I'll be done with you. You're going to have to deal with man Camino Bell. I don't have, I'm not going to have time to deal with you. Shout out to Camino Bell because he was my first landlord in <laughs> the city of Chicago. Dr. Yeah. yeah, Dr. Bell. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, and so the game didn't really start out the way we wanted to. I think they jumped out on us like 14 nothing lead. And uh, it ended up being 21 to seven. And seven of those points, uh, seven of those 21 that they ended up taking, uh, this guy, Kevin Kilgallen. I'll never forget his name. He hits me up every now and then, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, to harass me. He <laughs> runs up. He takes the ball out of my arm, just rips it out. Oh. Runs it in for a touchdown. Now, imagine me. The ball goes. So now I'm trying to turn to go chase him, and I get <laughs> oh, I'm like, yeah. oh. So that's how it all started. So <laughs> to be truthful, I'm responsible for nine. <laughs> um, they give me credit for eight. But then it just happened. I mean, we had a really good football team that year. Uh, we had some studs on the defensive side, some first-round draft picks, and we just really weren't playing well at all. We were looking forward to our next matchup against Colorado, who had beaten us the year before uh, and, and ended up uh, you know, playing really well. But, you know, it, it just ended up happening. So to answer your question, when did it become enough? You know, we got to seven, I think. And it, it was happening so fast. It was like every time I touched it, I was scoring. And I was like, man, that, this is enough. Because the guy on the other side, Coach Smith, actually coached at Illinois for a while. And we oh. had a great relationship. So my thing was, right, why are we trying to embarrass, you know, Coach Smith? That's not a big deal. Uh, Coach Makovic at the time looked at me and said, Howard, you're never going to get this close. You might as well try it. If you don't get it on this next carry, then it's over. Okay, all right. Have hardly run out there, and, and we end up scoring. So then we end up with eight. So that was yeah. the end of that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then you jumped into the NFL where fullbacks aren't respected. Uh, what 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 happened to the fullback position, man? Like as a kid, I grew up with like Tom Rathman and yeah. dudes like you know, locally yeah. here, Brad Muster. You know, yep. you needed you needed somebody to pave the way, and then Lo mm-hmm. Neal did it like back to back to back years for thousand yeah. yard rushes, and then all of a sudden they just start putting another tight end out there, another wide receiver out there. You know, all of, you know the dudes with the neck rolls just went away so uh, what happened to the fullback man i I tell you what ultimately happened in a passing game evolved right people started wanting to play the game in space you started to see buffalo made this really popular spread offense with the k-gun uh so they were spreading guys out playing in space and 
you know, you really didn't need the fullback because they were throwing it all the time. But, you know, fortunately, it was guys like Moose Johnson that was still running around in Dallas, in, you know, in a similar form of the West Coast offense. And then that allowed it to stick around for a while. But even now, if you look at the 49ers, they still will use fullback. You know, and Kyle Shanahan is, you know, he's his dad, really. He wants to run the ball and be physical at the point of attack. So he uses but that's about it. And and I think when you started to, general managers and coaches started to look at the roster, well, where can we get an extra guy? Whether it's a receiver, whether it's a tight end, we can have that guy, you know, play the fullback position. But as they've all figured out, it doesn't really work out that way. So you end up playing with three and four wide receivers anyway, and you put that guy in the backfield. He wants nothing to do with blocking anybody. He <laughs> wants to get out and run and catch a pass. Because that's what he's saying to his buddies at home. I don't know why they're putting me in the backfield. I don't want to hit anybody. I need to catch passes. My kind, my incentives are based on me catching passes and scoring touchdowns. 100%. And hitting linebackers isn't going to get it done. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so crazy. I'm glad you mentioned that about guys not uh, wanting to hit anybody. I, I always used to wonder – like with these first round draft picks at the running back position or high round draft picks, first through the third, there, there aren't any drills at, at the combine for blocking, right, for, for running backs. And I always wondered how you could tell that you had somebody that mm-hmm. was going to be able to com- you know, compete at the point of attack and protect your quarterback. Like you could draft an Ezekiel Elliott and you don't know until he showed – because they're not asking Ezekiel to block too much at Ohio State. He's Ezekiel yeah. Elliott. So, so how do you know mm-hmm. when you – do you have to wait till you got 80 people in the hot sweaty sun to find out if a dude wants to do that? Or like how does a, how does a coach or a scout or a teammate know when a guy's coming in if he wants to hit somebody while not getting the ball? You don't know until you ask him to do it. <laughs> and that and that and that's real. And you mentioned at the college game, not a lot of guys are, are asked to do that. But I'm glad you brought up Ezekiel Elliott because he's one of the guys that you know I've had a chance to cover uh, in my 15 years at the Big Ten Network. That to me was a willing participant when he didn't have the ball in his hand. And I think you can see that the scouts can see that whether they're at practice, whether they're watching the games, whether or not they're a willing participant. Now at the end of the day, you really have no idea until he's got that Blixen linebacker coming at him, whether or not he's going to be effective. You just don't know. And you figure it out in training camp and you try to get him better. But the reality is a lot of these guys have don't have the want to to do it in the first place. So, you know, you got to be kind of different to want to go block people and not be getting all the glory of catching the passes and doing that sort of thing. But that's that's what separates, you know, a lot of players. And I'm not going to say – the good ones from the great ones because there are a lot of good ones that are good blockers and a lot of great ones that, you know, are just average, but they're still great back. So I think it's one of those things that you just have to want to get good at it and you got to want to do it. And, you know, sometimes the way the game is called, it's hard to put yourself in that position. Now, there is a problem with sometimes when these uh, offensive coordinators decide to line these backs up or even a tight end on an elite pass rusher. I call it putting the skinny guy on the fat guy. Let the fat guys block the fat guys. Let the skinny guys block the, block the safeties in the corners uh-huh. and those guys. But uh-huh. Don't have me trying to block, you know, the highest paid defensive player in the league and look at right. me like, oh, I was supposed to make him stop. No, nah, that's not how that works. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's uh every Sunday with as oh, Bears yeah. fans know you see you see a Jimmy Graham or somebody lined up on a Miles Garrett and you're yeah. like this this Come probably on, ain't gonna work this probably ain't gonna, gonna work. work yeah 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 that that Denver experience because you were a Carolina Panther you yeah. were a Ram uh, you were a Colt but that Denver experience uh, by the way still to this day my favorite. GIF, sports GIF of all, or GIF, I should say, of all time is Ed McCaffrey blocking and then pointing at the guy. I forget who he did it to, but just Brian Williams. Just, Brian Williams just depleting him. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I knew Ed had that shit in him, boy, because he pointed at him all the way yeah. down. You know, yeah. I think it was TD or you running past yeah. him. I'm like, this is it. That Denver experience, though, some characters, Hall of Famers, uh, championship glory. What was like that? What was that like for you yeah so when i talk about my experience at denver you know i i also kind of talk about my practice squad experience when i was with the buffalo bills because i was on that practice squad when they went to their second super bowl in a row and, and ended up losing to minnesota to washington and if you look at that team uh at with buffalo i mean it's hard to believe just the great players that were on that team, whether it was the offensive side or the defensive side. And arguably, Steve Tasker should be in the Hall of Fame as yes, a special sir. teams player. I mean, it had that much talent. But one of the things, ultimately, that that team lacked was discipline. And, you know, because they were, everyone was fighting for the pride and the glory and trying to be the guy and be, and listen, I understand, man. You got a Thurman Thomas on one side, Bruce Smith right. over there, Shane Kyle. I mean, Cornelius Bennett. Name, Jim Kelly. You just had, the talent was undeniable. There's absolutely no reason when you think about a team that goes to four straight, I mean, forget not winning, just get there four times. It is right. unbelievable. But when I look back at the Denver team, you had guys that had been around uh, and essentially been jettisoned from the teams that they were with before. And then you had a general manager, pro personnel guy, um, who was John Elway's dad, was one of the one of the main guys that brought in the pro personnel. Them guys could pick guys. They knew, bring this guy in, we can make him fit, this to work, we'll do this. I mean, they were masters at, at figuring out what free agency was ultimately about. So you put this collection of guys that, you know, had been jettisoned from other places. You put them on a team where now all of a sudden, you know, it's like, okay, guys, you know, nobody else wants us. Let's put this thing together. This is how we can do it. And what I, the way I describe it is the fear of loss and the fear of letting your teammate down. We used to have this drill nine on seven. We do it on Thursdays. It mm -hmm. was only 10 plays. So of those 10 plays, I may have gotten six of them. So I knew I needed to be perfect. There's the only time I needed to be perfect were on those six plays. And if I wasn't perfect on those six plays, man, I had nightmares because I knew the next day we were going to sit as an offense and we were going to critique each position. And then at some point in that meeting, one of the players was going to step up and start critiquing what everyone was supposed to do, whether or not you did a good job or not. And what I realized early is that John Elway could be coached hard. And being able to coach your star player as if he's your, you know, 53rd player on the roster really speaks volumes. And that's when I really started to understand, you know, what this game was really about. I mean, you, you coach everybody hard. Nobody gets a pass. And I don't know whether it was intentional that they did it this way. Alex Gibbs was the one who really used to get after John. But it was just masterful because – He was the old line knew, coach, right? Yeah, he was the old line coach. He just oh, recently wow. passed. 
Yeah. So if he's willing to get on the the best player on the team, you better believe everybody else better get their stuff together. And that's how we operated. Nobody wanted to let anyone else down, no matter what you were doing. And when you talk about championship teams and I look at them, there's leadership in every group. There's got to be. Everybody doesn't have a C on their chest, but there's leadership and people are respected at each position. And that's what it came down to. And that's what that team was about. It was about understanding what your role was and trying to maximize it and not being the weak link in that game plan, no matter whether you were the starter or the backup. You know, I want you to put yourself in a position of the guys who are in the league or in college football today where you got social media and you have uh, political and racial lines that are drawn. Um, Back in the day, You know, I'm sure you guys had guys who didn't agree politically, but you probably didn't share it. I'm sure you had guys who, you know, you're like, oh, that guy's on a little something different than I would be on. But, you know, we got to go out there. It used to be called, was it, uh, football character, right? You you, you had football character. You you were in it for the team. And now, in this day and age where we're talking about vaccines and we're talking about, you know, how you you believe marginalized communities should be treated and you got these slogans all across the back of the helmet, Mm -hmm. how would you – navigate the waters of teammateship or camaraderie or locker room understandings as opposed to the way that you you were allowed to do it, I guess, back then? You know, honestly, I I don't know. Hmm. And that's the honest answer because I'm not in that kind of a setting right now. But I'll tell you how we operated then. You know, you didn't talk about religion. (laughs) You didn't talk about you didn't talk about business deals and stuff like you. You didn't bring that into the locker room. Now, were there ever some racial things that happened? There was. Bill Romanowski spit in the face of J.J. Stokes, and it sent a firestorm not only you know throughout the NFL but in our own locker room. So they, we had to have some serious conversations in the locker room about that incident. So I do know that things were handled, although they were handled maybe differently because we don't have we didn't have the social media at that point, but they were right. still dealt with. And you know, I think that's you know, the biggest part of, you know, what's really changed is social media is that, you know, I can all of a sudden decide I can go right back to my locker, sit in my locker and and send out my feelings immediately through social media. I don't necessarily need it to be leaked to the, to the, to the newspaper or to the, any of the reporters. So it's different. I know it, it's straining uh, for not only coaching staff, but players, because you have to be cognizant of what's going on. To be honest, I don't know how I would have functioned or made it uh, with a with camera phones and and yeah. all the everybody that gets to be a a reporter nowadays in this game. It, it, it's very difficult for right now these young people to try to go out and make mistakes because I, you know high school you're going to make them. Yeah, you go to college, you still make mistakes. You talk chalk it up to you know it's just a learning experience. Now you know you're a high profile athlete in high school. You make a mistake, you've got a problem. You do it in college, you got a problem. You, you, we look at the really what happened, and this isn't a social media issue, but it's still a problem that happened when I was playing with guys drinking and driving. Mm-hmm. You know, you could fifty dollars for Uber, whatever it's going to be, but so much of it is well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not drunk, I'm good, and it's just the times are, have all been magn- magnified, I think, because of you know, what's going on with social media and the different things that are happening, you know, in our community. I would like to think that we still would have been vigilant and been involved in what was going on. But the honest answer is, I, I don't think we really know. 
Big Ten Network analyst and Super Bowl champion Howard Griffith joining us here on the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff. Howard, the Big Ten is wild. Like I, I'm, I, I'm trying to understand how Mel Tucker can go to Michigan State. They didn't score 45 points in all of the season, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden they come out against Miami and, and lay 30 something on them. They yep. did what they did against Michigan. Uh, they're number three, uh, I believe, in the CFP with the yep. initial rankings, and and everybody's still looking at Ohio State like that's that's what's real over there. But yeah. I, I'm rooting for Mel and, and Michigan State. And I've never really been a big fan of Michigan State. I grew up a Michigan fan, but uh-huh. man, East Lansing got it <laughs> popping right now. What, what what's so what's so attractive about the Spartans outside of the terrific running back that they have right now? Yeah, you know what? It, what's amazing? They they brought in a number of of guys out of the transfer portal, and, and I think the immediate reaction is, well, you brought all these players in. How did you? How were you able to get them met, to match? <laughs> yeah, it really, at the end of the day, is really not that hard because. The guys left a place that they were unhappy with. So you were looking for something, looking to be a part of something, looking to be included. So the guy at the front of the the room, Mel Tucker, is this guy sets the tone immediately. This is what we're going to do. This is who we are. This is how we're going to go about handling our business. So as players, you know, at the end of the day, you want direction. You want somebody that's going to, to be able to speak to you with conviction and then you want them to be able to show you how we can do it. So it's week one, it's week two, it's week three. And they go out and continue to prove that they can do it. And all while not playing their best game. Then they go out against Michigan. You see your head coach go for it a couple times on fourth down and you convert. You see your coach go for it instead of kicking a field goal, continuing to keep the drive alive. Now the players are getting just the energy that they're getting and also the belief that, yeah, we are pretty good. We can do this. And I think that at one point they, they were down 30 to 14 in Michigan and you couldn't tell if you were watching the game, but mm-hmm. they just really believe in, in what coach Tucker has, has been able to bring to the table. You spend a couple of minutes with them as the head coach of, of Michigan state and you get it real quick. And it, it's going to be a reason that I know it's already started. But, you know, athletic departments and athletic directors are reaching out, trying to gauge, do we have a shot at making a push to try Mm -hmm. to get him to to leave Michigan State? There are a couple places, USC, and you look at LSU right now. Those are a couple places in Florida might end up being in that boat, too. If your ADs at those three spots, you're crazy if you're not putting in a call to at least gauge to see if there are some interest. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that LSU job because I look at the last and shout out to these gentlemen, but I look at the last two coaches to win national championships for the LSU Tigers. And all it says to me is that is a professional mill of, of talent, you know, like Les Miles and, and Ed Orgeron, yeah. like, you know, th- these ain't dudes who are going to reinvent, you know, coaching or, or offensive mm-hmm. defensive schemes. These are dudes who had professional players uh, at all times. When, when you look at the Big Ten and the the influx of talent from Florida. You saw Tal mm-hmm. Allen go down to uh, Florida and, and get a whole bunch of them boys to come back and play at yep. Indiana. You saw the Rutgers was trying to do the same thing. Michigan and Ohio State obviously have some of that Florida pipeline, Ohio State more so. Uh, is, is the Midwest – is the talent not up to par or is it that it's so sparse you, you got to be able to go and get depth from other places like the South or the West? Yeah, I, I think it depends upon what you're, where you're, you look at your staff and you try to figure out, okay, where, where are those relationships built? 
And you mentioned Tom Allen in Indiana. His staff has a great deal of relationships that were built in that Florida area. So, you know, I look at a place like Indiana, they have to kind of be strategic in where they go. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about them, obviously had a lot of success two years ago, last year as well, and then this year haven't haven't done as well. The, the trick with them recruiting-wise is you start to have the success on the field. Does that mean I need to start trying to recruit every four or five star that's out there? Because the reality is if you start you know, putting your resources toward trying to uh, recruit those fours and fives, you're going to miss out on a lot of threes that you had in your backyard that you could grab. So there's a challenge once you start to have a lot of success on the field. You look at a place like Ohio State, they go all over the country. Uh, to get their players. And, and they have the reputation to be able to go into Florida, to go into Texas, to go wherever they are and recruit the best player in that state. Now, you talk about Michigan State. Michigan State, when Coach D'Antonio started to really get things rolling, he was winning big time in, in Ohio because Ohio State couldn't take all the guys that were there. So Michigan State was like, hey, we're into this thing. We can go in. And they got a lot of great players out there. Michigan has done the same thing. So I think from a recruiting standpoint, it depends upon the talent on your coaching staff. But to be clear, to get back to your question about is the Big Ten or the, this Midwest footprint, a lot of times it's over-recruited. A lot of times there are not a lot of great players um, that are necessarily here that everyone's targeting. And that's where they ended up mi missing out. Minnesota got this kid, Irving, from Hazelcrest that – I think he's going to put on a show this weekend when he plays because Minnesota's down to, I don't know, their fourth, fifth running back. Yeah. But this dude is special. He can play. Uh, and he he should be in Champaign. But things happen. They take players who do different things. So mm -hmm. there are enough players that are out here in the Midwest, but I don't necessarily think there are enough players in this Midwest or, you know, Illinois, tri-state area that are really going to be able to affect a lot of the rosters that are in the Big Ten footprint. I asked Kendall Gill and Stephen Bardo this about the basketball side of things. I'm going to ask mm -hmm. you about the football side of things. H how much involvement should alumni have in terms of not only the present day guys who are on the campus, but also like you mentioned, you know, blowing in a call to somebody or being there on a visit. Like, and also, how many coaches want that if they're not from this region? You know, because you don't want to you want to invite yourself to somebody's crib. Right. You, you do that. You might get in trouble out here in these yeah. streets. So how does how do those things mesh? And is that something that these other programs who are successful? Is that something that's, uh, you know, in, in, entrenched in their DNA? Right? You know, when you come to Michigan, you're going to see Desmond Howard at some point. You know, when you go you know, to Nebraska, hell, the coach used to play for them. So like, right. yeah. is that something that is, some, is something that University of Illinois has to maybe get back to is it something that they're not going to do like how do you feel about that as a, a former University of Illinois player you know I think I think Brett Bigelman is doing you know a better job at it I think Lovey wanted players to come back but I think part of the issue is Champaign is where Champaign is okay it, I mean that's what it is I mean if you if you look at a place and I'll use Ohio State as an example there are so many former Buckeyes players in whatever sport they play living in the Columbus area, mm -hmm. that it isn't that hard to, to get a former Heisman Trophy right. winner because they got a couple of Heisman <laughs> Trophy winners that live there. So, right. I right. mean, that thing's not that hard. So, with, in Champ with Illinois, the players have to be able to make a concerted effort to get there 
and, and to be around. Now, a uh, good friend of mine, Alfred Williams, who played at Colorado, who's an unbelievable player, played with me at Denver. He started at Colorado, like a, a golf outing, right? And the golf outing for a while was donating like $30,000, $40,000. And guys were coming back to Boulder just to hang out. And they weren't really playing, but they were just hanging out, having a good time, donating money or whatever. And, and I think some schools have to try to, to be creative about how they get their, their former athletes back to campus. Because the other thing, too, is once your head coach isn't there, if you're not necessarily in the media, what connection do you still have with the university mm -hmm. if your coaches are not there? And it's a little bit different the way I see it from the outside when I look at uh, Kendall and Bardo and myself, because we're still active in the sport on the media side. But I look at some other players, if they're not involved, then they're not coming to the university. They're not in touch with the university. It's, so it becomes very difficult. Um, and it's a, it's a balancing act, particularly if you know, you're trying to, to create revenue. Penn State, if you're a former Penn State player, you can go to any Penn State game you want to, and you're going to have a parking pass, and you're going to be on the sideline. That's mm. just how they do business out there. Mm -hmm. That's just how they do business. You know, okay. some places it's just not like that. But, you know, it just depends upon what the the philosophy is um, of, ultimately, you know, the athletic department. Now, I'll say this, too. You got to write checks. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> wants to access, right? Everybody wants to access to the suite. What that, that dough looking like. <laughs> but you also got to write checks. <laughs> and, and, and that's so real. <laughs> it's real. So, I bring up the Buckeyes again. They they got a cruise every year, and they raise millions on this cruise. The guys that are on the cruise cut a check. They've either cut checks or people are coming to see them that are going to cut checks. Mm, so everybody's okay. bringing something to the table. Okay. Well, you got to tell Simeon Rice to flash that smile and get people to come and hang out for a little bit, you know? You I know, gotta... right? That would be work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before we let you go here, when, when did you know that this second act of your career was something that you wanted to be a part of? When did broadcasting step in for you? I, really, I was at the University of Illinois. And oh. um, I was like, I want to I stay close to, to sports. And what I did when I was there, you know, I would, you know, I had relationships with all the writers and the camera people. And I'm like, hey, man, let me come hang out. I could do an internship mm. over there. Let me come hang out with you for a couple, you know, a couple times a week and just see how you guys do it and what you do. And what I found out was they're like, yeah, come on. <laughs> you know, it's free, free help, right? Plus right, you can talk right. about the game. Yeah, a little insight. So, yeah. Exactly. So I you know, was doing that. And then, you know, after I was done in Denver, I did the same thing. You know, I was working. I was calling, actually started out calling uh, arena football, the Colorado Crush. Then I started doing stuff for uh, the Colorado State. Uh, so I just started just continuing to grow and grow. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. Then had the opportunity to come back here. And I was actually going to do radio for the University of Illinois. And after I accepted that job, I got a call from... Uh, the Big Ten Network. They were like, hey, we want you to come up here and uh, interview. And I'm like, okay, we can do that. Not a problem. I interview. They say, hey, man, we, we want you to be on our studio show. I said, well, wait, you know, I just took this job. And she said, hey. you <laughs> <laughs> like, well, yeah, I know, but it's television. That's radio. I said, well, I kind of gave them my word. Y'all need to call and work it out. <laughs> Y'all need, need to figure that one out. <laughs> Cause I know what he had, a, he, had his, he had his he had his main he had no, his main and his side. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, the main and your side on the phone at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Y'all need to work that out. So they ended up working it out. You crazy. 15 years later, here I am. Oh, my God. Shout out to Q because no he, doubt. he is uh, – Quentin has uh, – he, he was part of the, one of the worst moments in my professional career when he asked me to come up there and do like uh, – the Big Ten Pulse hadn't been formed yet, and they were thinking okay. about doing this show. Yeah. And he called me up there, and I was like, oh, cool. I'm on the radio. You know, I could do this. I could sit down and shoot the shit. And I sat down there, and they were like, you're going to be the moderator. You're going to be the lead host. And at that time, I was just used to giving opinions, right? Yeah, right. And they are like, yeah, fam, you don't play anything or haven't played anything – so they don't care about your thought, man. Howard, when I tell you, I sat down there and the fright that came over my body. I forget the brother that I was doing it with, too. The brother that went to Northwestern. Uh, uh, I forget his uh, name. Chris Martin. Chris Martin. Chris oh, Martin. my God. What made it even worse is Jerry Brown is like a second pops to me. Right? Okay. So I told him I'm going to be doing it. Oh, Chris is a good guy. He's going to yeah. take care of you. Man, I sat next to Chris. Chris could see it in my eyes. And when I tell you I got through one segment and just – Took the microphone off, said, Q, I appreciate you. Walked I didn't even, yeah, I, I told him, I'm like, this ain't for me. Y'all want me to say things without stumbling and cursing. I don't know what's happening in my head. I got three people talking to me. I don't know what camera to look at. So I want to thank, I want to thank Q. I want to thank Quentin for launching this, whatever this TV career is, because it happened at Big Ten Network with the, 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 the flammable uh, audition tape that I, uh, I had a chance to lay down there. But uh, as we let you go, man, like I said, I appreciate your time so much. I know you're a busy man. Um, worst day of your career, best day of your career. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, wow. The worst day. Oh, uh, <laughs> the worst day of, of ever practicing, right, for me. And this goes back to the University of Illinois. So this is – you know, I guess I guess you can call it my career. I was on scholarship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to make the practice, the travel squad. So this mm-hmm. is my redshirt freshman year. I'm, do- I'm so I'm willing to do whatever it takes. They got me running down on special teams. I'm doing all kinds <laughs> of stuff. So we got the scrimmage, and I'm on I'm on the punt team one play, and then I'm on the they're moving. I'm bouncing me back and forth. I'm tired as all get out. The bottom line is now I'm back on the punt team. So I'm supposed to no, I'm back on the punt return team. Oh, okay. So I'm supposed to be blocking for my roommate, Mike Bellamy at the time. Okay. So I'm blocking my guy, and it's someplace when I start running the other way. <laughs> Jason, I lit his ass up. <laughs> I mean, I lit him up. The coach looks at me. And Bill Kolar, who's still coaching in the National Football League, a defensive line coach, he looks at me and says, hey, Griff, ooh, what's wrong with you? You're, 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 you're hitting your own guy? I said, oh, coach, I'm sorry. I messed up. He said, no, but, but listen, this is okay. I like the way you attacked me. <laughs> I said, oh, try, my word. Try to give you anything, right? It's just anything. To t- and that was it. So that, that was the worst. I, I don't think I've experienced anything. Uh, like that since, you know, on the field. The best was waiting to hear my name called mm. at the first Super Bowl in in San Diego. Uh, Phil Sims had been in practice a couple days before, and he was like, Howard, man, you just don't know how lucky you are. I said, what are you talking about? 
He said, you're going to, your name's going to get called because Elway, you're going to introduce the offense. Obviously, they want to talk about Elway, da, da, da. Man, you, you just don't understand the emotions that are going to go through your mind and your head when you're standing in that tunnel. And I'm like, come on, Phil. What are you talking about? And it was no doubt. I'm standing in that tunnel waiting, and I'm thinking about high school coaches. I'm thinking about first grade teachers. I'm thinking about all the people that helped me get to this point in my career to have a chance to run out and compete in the Super Bowl coaches. In the rush of emotions during that moment, that 15 to 20 seconds from the time the guy in front of you's name is called and then you start to run out there is an is an unbelievable experience outside the birth of my boys. Mm. See? That's that's why. That's why right there. Everybody <laughs> talks about their wins. Not many people talk about their losses, especially when it comes to hitting your own teammate in practice when you're not supposed <laughs> we're, to. We're still boys to this day, though. I mean, yeah, I don't know how he couldn't be. You know, <laughs> he knows the damage that you could do. <laughs> Howard, man, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. You are one of the examples I speak about whenever anybody asks me about, like, the people that I look up to in this industry, in this business. You carry yourself like a professional, respectable man, and you're always sharp. You're in great shape. Um, you are You are one of those dudes, man. So I appreciate you giving me this time tonight. Wait, man, I appreciate it, man. You have done an unbelievable job. It's been so much fun watching the growth from that producer to now hosting the show. Now you're just sitting back, chilling, directing traffic. Man, you are doing an unbelievable job. And uh, I love seeing the pictures of you and your son, too, as well. Oh, it's always fun to check out, I'm about, too. I'm about to go pick him up from daycare right now, my man. I'm about to <laughs> go right, pick him up brother. right now. I appreciate you, Howard. Thank you for joining All us, right. brother. All right. Time for some commercials. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Right on this edition of Outside the Shy, we are going to line up a couple of goofies in our crosshairs. Let's start with Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he tested positive for COVID-19, and that's not the biggest deal because, let's face it, this virus is still with us, is going to be with us. Uh, we're going to have to learn how to deal with it again this winter. Uh, I, I'm, you're aware. I'm aware. Like, There's no new news there. But the news is that... The fact that Aaron Rodgers lied to everybody about being vaccinated. Uh, this is listen. 
a lot of people are doing the whole, if you're going to get on Kyrie, get on Aaron Rodgers thing. I was going to get on Aaron Rodgers even if it wasn't for Kyrie. Like, I can respect Kyrie in this way and this way only. Kyrie Irving is uh, going to stand on his ridiculousness and not be moved off of his ridiculousness. Uh, he's not. He didn't. He's not lying to you when he's like, "I don't want to get vaccinated, and I don't think I should have to." And you know, maybe he he throws the people who you know are losing jobs or you know people who don't want to put certain stuff into their body, being forced to put certain stuff into their body. He's he's using that as a, a little bit of a shield. But Kyrie Irving, we haven't heard from him in a few weeks because. Lord knows the NBA was going to continue to do their thing, even though maybe Kyrie didn't think that they would continue to do their thing. So I don't get mad at him for that. I get mad because he's putting other people at risk and there's a lot of people who can't protect themselves. I and mean, you know what? Yada, yada, yada. We, we all know what the, uh, the, the COVID-19 vaccine ridiculous um, takes are. We know them, but to me, for Aaron Rodgers to go out there and lie about being vaccinated, the the, the cowardice in that for me is ridiculous. Uh, saying that he's receiving a homeopathic treatments to protect against COVID nineteen as well. They didn't work. They didn't work, Aaron. And if Aaron Rodgers wasn't slightly funny or slightly cooler than you, we'd be killing his ass the way we kill Kirk Cousins. The only difference is Kirk Cousins, I believe, is staying his ass in the crib because he's one of those, you know, I won't say weird guys, but he's one of those dudes who just like, I believe, just lives in the basement as is. Like he's probably got a, a, an eight bedroom crib somewhere in Hennepin County and he decides to stay in the basement and watch film. Like I can see that in Aaron Rodgers. Uh, no, I'm sorry, in Kirk Cousins. Aaron Rodgers, though, Aaron Rodgers has been coughing on people on Jeopardy. Aaron Rodgers has been running around here butt naked face talking to people. He's been, he was he was John Wick for a holiday party. He's surrounded by brothers who probably have people in their family who got diabetes and overweight and all other shit that's going on in the black community. He's just breathing on everybody. Like this is the reason why we should get on Aaron Rodgers. Right. And I know he's he's truly upset. Now, the por the reports are coming out. He's furious. He is steaming mad uh, that the leaks came out about his unvaccinated status. Well, guess what, idiot? You did it to yourself, because the moment that one of the faces of the league gets that disease, gets that virus, we're going to ask some questions. You know, Cam Newton got it. Immediately, we were like, oh, Cam ain't vaccinated. And guess what? Bill Belichick said, get your ass up out of here. Mac Jones was beating you anyway. So why don't why didn't Aaron Rodgers think that nobody would ask the if the MVP of the league was vaccinated or not? This is foolish. He looks like a damn clown. And I, for one, am never going to think he's as cool as I thought he was before. Right? He had the California cool thing going on. He had the whole relaxed thing a couple of years that everybody glommed onto which I thought was kind of lame but this dude is a super goofy of epic proportions not only because he, he lied about being vaccinated but he went about it as if he was vaccinated you know look at these post-game pressers or look at these during the week you know podiums uh that he has to have where the quarterback goes out there on a Wednesday or a Tuesday and talks about the game he's never worn a mask so on top of that, he is a spreader of this ridiculous disease as well, this ridiculous virus. Like, come on, bro. You look foolish, and you're going to look foolish for the foreseeable future. He's going to come back, and everybody's going to cover up for him. I can't wait till the first Sunday night football game where Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth 
have to act like they don't want to talk. Well, they don't have to act like they don't want to talk about it, but have to act like it's not a storyline. Or my favorite is when Chris Collinsworth gets a hold of a storyline, does two seconds of it in the beginning of the broadcast and goes, now can we get back to football in that cowboy way that he does? This is going to be interesting to see how Aaron Rodgers is handled going forward because to me, you look like an absolute goofy. And then, speaking of absolute goofies... (laughs) The man Robert Sarver, who has been known as one of the worst owners in all of professional sports, well, the shit done hit the fan. Robert Sarver, ladies and gentlemen, is about to have his team taken from him. And that's the only way that you can look at this. Whenever you see this headline about you, it ain't about to be good for you, player. And the headline is allegations of racism and misogyny within the Phoenix Suns inside Robert Sarver's 17-year tenure as an owner. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if that kind of headline is, is, is preceding a story about me, it's time to pack some shit up. It's time to call some people around you and say, hey, man, we're not going to be living like we used to be living because it is time for me to go. People have caught up to me. Baxter Holmes, who does a terrific job for, for ESPN.com, had this to say, and I'm not going to read the entire thing. I'm just going to read the portions that make you uncomfortable out there. So Robert Sarfer, after a a loss to the Golden State Warriors back when Earl Watson, you remember Earl Watson, right? UCLA Bruin point guard, Phoenix Sun point guard, just, you know, long time back up in the NBA, respected dude. Uh, actually ran into him at the Mission, my favorite Mexican restaurant in this entire United States of America, uh, in, in Scottsdale, uh, in, in Arizona. I think Tammy, you were you were with us that night, right? Yeah, we were all out together when we, when we ran into yeah when we ran into the uh, the homeless fellow who looked like the Cubs hitting coach at the time, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that night. So Earl Watson and Robert Sarver had this uh, this little dialogue. So Baxter Holmes writes after the loss, Suns majority owner Robert Sarver entered the coach's locker room. Watson told ESPN, and this is what Robert Sarver had to say. You know, why does Draymond Green get to run up the court and say nigger? Sarver, who is white, allegedly said, repeating the N-word several times in a row. Earl Watson said, you can't say that. Earl Watson, who is black and Hispanic, told Sarver, you can't say it, dog. Like, be a better person. And then, quote, why? Sarver replied, Draymond Green says nigger, unquote. Then Earl Watson said, quote, you can't fucking say that, unquote. Now, <laughs> now for, all, for, all my, uh, for all my whites out there, don't say the word. Like, this is, this is a PSA from, from your, your only black friend, probably. Don't say the word. Not in a rap lyric. Not, not when reading a poem, not when reciting uh, lines from a movie, because I know y'all love to recite lines from movies instead of just talking at times. <laughs> Filling in the blanks for your lack of personality out there. Just don't say the word. Leave it alone. Oh, and by the way, he, he, he had the full card of get your ass fired bingo because this was also said. <laughs> one son's corner so now the, the calls are coming from inside the house ladies and gentlemen one son's corner said about sarver the level of misogyny and racism is beyond the pale it's embarrassing as an owner 
uh, said a former Suns basketball executive, quote, there's literally nothing you could tell me about him from a misogynistic or race standpoint that would surprise me. Now, of course, Sarver has gone on to deny these kinds of things. Uh, he said, let me be crystal clear. I never once said on that night or ever that I should be able to say the N-word because a player or a black person uses it. Guess what, Robbie? I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And you know why I don't, I don't believe you? Because Greta told us years ago what kind of dude you are. And if you're asking yourself, who the hell is Greta, Jace? Well, guess what? I got an aunt named Greta. She lives on the South Shore over on Jeffrey. I'm not talking about Aunt Greta. Shout out to Aunt Greta, by the way. Happy birthday to you. She's, she's one of the best uh, seamstresses that I've ever been around in my life. But I ain't talking about Aunt Greta. I'm talking about Greta from Phoenix, Arizona, who stood up at a, a was it a, a council meeting or like one of those town halls? And she had this to say about one Robert Sarver. This is Chicago politics at its worst. And it has a very foul odor. We are in the business of governing a large city for all who live here. And we are not in the business of funding private enterprise. I don't care what it is. Mr. Sarver has done nothing to improve this team in the 14 years he's owned it. He's never funded or bought, paid for two or three key players which make any sports team, professional sports team, successful or on the road to success. He's so tight, he squeaks when he walks. <laughs> and you have been negotiating with this kind of person? Shame on each and all of you. We are not in the business of paying taxes to support private enterprise. And, and especially not an entertainment enterprise. They can support themselves or fail on their own lack of diligence. Don't do this to us again. And make your, make your considerations and discussions with the private sector public. We fund this city. Thank you. It isn't funded by private enterprise. Damn it. I thought she was going to break out and we built this city on rock and roll. But shout out to Greta because Greta said everything, one, that every fan would say about, uh, you know, subsidizing these billionaire owner stadiums. But not only did she do that, she went into the, the roster composition. Like she went into like, yo, you ain't even brought some good players here for me to want to give you my hard earned money. So shout out to Greta. I hope she's still alive. And for Robert Sarver, guess what, homie? Your days are numbered out there in Phoenix, Arizona, because you, my friend, are a dummy. You're a goofy. And the fact that you had the audacity to even carry yourself like this out and open. This is what happens when rich people aren't checked. This is what happens when owners think that they have all 
all the rights to disrespecting anyone culturally, um, uh, gender wise, whatever the case may be. The, the time is up for a lot of these dudes. And, and it's it's um, it's interesting to watch because we're going to have a lot of people caping for Robert. Sorry, don't don't think that they're not they're not going to pull the capes out because getting canceled and all this stuff, which I don't even think believe uh, is, is a thing anymore, because who's the last person has been canceled? Who, who just can't work anymore? Like anybody can go find work. Anybody can do whatever they need to do. But this is especially sweet because there are a lot of owners out there who move like this dude moves. And if Donald Sterling wasn't a telltale sign that there's a bunch of dudes being covered up for, not only in the NBA, but also in the NFL and Major League Baseball, be aware. Be aware how you've been handling business. Be aware how you've been treating people because at some point it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. We'll be back with more of the full goal with Jason Goff. After a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Coming up on the next episode of The Full Goal with Jason Goff. All right, we'll be back Sunday night with another episode of The Full Goal. We'll talk about how much we enjoyed a Sunday without the Bears. And we're going to preview the matchup with Ryan Shazier, former Pittsburgh Steeler and also a dude who I get a chance to talk to every single Tuesday on the Tuesday edition of the NFL Ringer Show or the Ringers NFL Show. I always get in trouble for that. I need to start getting that down. So it's James Jones, it's me, it's Ryan Shazier every Tuesday. Uh, you'll be able to hear Ryan Shazier on this podcast. And we'll preview the Bears matchup with Pittsburgh. And we'll check in with the Bulls and see if they were able to bounce back against those pesky Philadelphia 76ers without Ben Simmons. So make sure you hit us up on the full goal voicemail line at 773-359-3103. That's 773-359-3103. Our producers, Steve Cerruti. Don't you ever call me Steve. Steve Cerruti, and also my main man, Chris Tannehill. I'm Jason Goff. Thank you so much for sharing and downloading and hanging out with us here on the Full Go Podcast, brought to you by The Ringer. Always Spotify is the gang. Take care of each other out there and be safe. Thank you for listening to my daddy. It's the Full Go Podcast.